Hi, you're listening to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury, and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC, and your host for today. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 12, where we continue to take a look at the massive industry that is footwear and shoes, and not just for the more serious athlete, but also for the general fitness and recreational athlete. Like episode 11, where we chatted to podiatrist Rick Osler, this episode will also go under our prevention banner of our podcast goals. Because for most of us, when we're looking at footwear, we're not really expecting our shoe to make us perform a lot better, but we're more looking at making sure our shoe will protect us from the demands that we're about to put on our body. And that fits nicely with the main topic of today's podcast, which is fit for purpose, which is basically trying to make sure you find the right shoe to suit not only the type of activity you're doing, but also the level of activity that you're doing. In that last episode with Rick, we looked at shoe technology and discussed terms like lasts and drops and stacks and posts, supination, pronation, maximalist and minimalist shoes, midsole foams, rocker bottoms and more. In this episode with Rick's podiatry partner Scott Murray, we'll take a look at the relationship between footwear and injury risk, whether cushioning in a shoe helps as much as we think it does, osteoarthritis and knee pain in runners, different shoes for different sports, footwear in kids, and a whole lot more. But before we get into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast series, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site, and that will make sure you won't miss an episode. But for now, let's get stuck into episode 12. I've been really looking forward to this follow-up podcast since we did the most recent one with Rick Osler and it gives me great pleasure to have today's guest with us to follow up on that podcast. Uh, Scott Murray, welcome. Hey Anthony, how you going? Yeah, good. Um, so a little bit of a bio first. So um, obviously uh, you're a podiatrist with it with us here at SSPC and have been for the last couple of years. Um, you're a podiatrist and partner of Sports Pods at Life Care Sports Medicine Centres and that's been about 12 years since 2008. Yeah, yeah, 12, 13 years now, yep. Yep, great. Um, and you were also, like Rick, uh, involved at Active Feet for about 10 years as well. Yeah, I would have spent a lot of my undergrad days and then my early clinical days there as well. Yeah, okay, great. Um, and your special interest, obviously, from what we see here, uh, you see a lot of sporting injuries and, and deal with a lot of injuries that are common to running athletes like plantar fascia, heel pain, bunions, Achilles, shin like all the things that runners uh dread to have so oh, is definitely unfortunately probably see a little bit too much of it particularly yep. now with the the covid stuff and big changes in everyone's activity patterns and everything but yeah that's certainly where the focus is yeah absolutely well let's um let's start and touch on changes in people's activity patterns and are, are you seeing more your person that's never run just looking for something to do to get fit or are you seeing more your seasoned athlete with more time on their hands doing more than they should 
look, there's there's certainly a little bit of both, but most at the moment I think is that you know typical patient that has normally been the basketballer. The basketball's taken a break, and yep. we've decided to take up running. Yep. And you know they get through the first couple of weeks okay, and all of a sudden week three, four, five, you know that's when they're coming in. They've broken down, yep. uh, and it's just. Their body's not used to that repetitive load and stress that they get with their running. And same as we commonly see, you know, just errors in their training patterns. And, you know, unfortunately, it brings them in here. Yeah, sure. Well, we'll get um, right into that as we go. But again, just a little bit about yourself and, and sport. Um, do you, is there much you do yourself? Oh, look, at the moment, uh, probably the main focus is around uh, my golf. Uh, my uh, battered body from my early days, I was quite injury prone and uh, I think, uh, what was it, uh, finger and hand injuries in my early clinical years finished my footy career. Um, so now it's my golf and just a, a bit of a keen runner as well, getting out there a couple of times a week. Uh, okay. Sometimes a bit of a swim down in the bay. Yeah, that's probably where my focus is yeah. now. And any niggling injuries you have to self-manage? Uh, look, a little bit. I've got a bit of a... Uh, doesn't sound good as a late 30-year-old, but a bit of a degenerative knee that you know, needs a little bit of management. But... Um, yeah, you know, as you'll probably point out a little bit later on as well, shouldn't necessarily stop me from being able to get out there and you know run a few k's. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and and I certainly will touch on that later. And it's a bit like the footwear stuff we're looking at uh, today, and with Rick, that you know our thought patterns with shoes have changed a lot. But yeah, with arthritis and sort of thinking, gosh, running an arthritis shouldn't go in the same sentence, and things have changed a bit with that, haven't they? Yeah, look, and I've actually found that being consistent with some of my running and my activity has actually probably led to less pain in it. So yeah. uh, I think that's a, a big key as well with the advice that we can give patients also. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, let's, um, if we go back and um, like if I was to give, I suppose, a brief summary of what we went through with Rick. So we looked at the various tech technology advancements in shoes over time so things like lasts and drops and stacks and posts and supination and pronation and maximalist and minimalist and rocker bottoms and we sort of went through it all and by the end it, it came down to not not many of those were, were really things we should be spending a lot of time on but comfort and fit and weight were really important um was there anything when you listened to that that sort of stood out or any common misconceptions that are worth sort of just reinforcing before we move on look there was uh, a lot of really great info in that last session with rick uh, yeah. as you'd expect rick's the uh, certainly got a wealth of knowledge yeah. when it comes to footwear but um I, I think it was actually even a bit of a term that rick might have you know passed on to me in my early active feet days which was you know, there's no such thing as a bad shoe but a bad application of that shoe that's what we really see a lot yep. um you know, whether it's the high mileage running shoe or the old Dunlop volleys. Each shoe has its purpose, but if we, you know, apply that shoe and use it for, you know, its purpose, then, you know, we can generally stay within that safe zone. So one of um, Rick's comments, uh, he talked about the difficulty of walking into a retail store and, and being able to, you know, get the assistant to ask you the right questions. And, and it's a hard thing to do for the average person to walk into a store and get the right shoe. So I'm just interested to know in your daily podiatry clinical work, how often does a client walk in? And obviously most of them walk in because they've got a problem. But how often do you see them walk in with a shoe that's just not suited to them? Look, we do see it and we do see it quite a lot. Um, 
I suppose in saying that, though, we need to bear in mind that, you know, the, the patients that I'm seeing, uh, most commonly the patients that have some pain, injury, yep. uh, or issue with function. And so I'm, I'm probably a little bit uh, skewed in the information I get, but I suppose that does give us a little bit of information in relation to, you know, the potential impact that that wrong shoe can have in relation to someone's injury. Um so, yeah, look, in the clinic, we do see it. Difficult to say how much, but it's certainly around. Yep, okay. Um, what about then, how often do they present with a shoe that's too old? Look, I, I think that one is a far more common presentation. Um, you know, I see some runners that when we go through their history, they've got a really detailed training program and coaches sorting out this and that, really keeping an eye on everything. And... We look at the shoes and the shoes are clearly three, four hundred kilometres past their best. Um, yeah, right. And, you know, quite often even the patients might be aware of that. So I think it's probably one that does need that little bit more attention. Yeah, um, okay. And, and is that longevity, again, we'll, we'll hopefully get time to talk about that later, but is that longevity just as important for the person that's walking the streets, you know, every day doing their half an hour as it is for the runner? Should, should they also be looking at their wear and tear in their runner? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so. And particularly when it even is that person, you know, using that shoe walking and, and daily, um, someone might be using that shoe for seven, eight hours a day. They use it for their walk as well. And sometimes they sort of forget that the seven or eight hours that they're weight bearing in the shoe for a day, that's also putting a lot of wear on the shoe also. Sure. So. Um, I, I think it is just as important. It does, you know, certainly play a role when we think about, you know, injury. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, let's get back on to uh, running uh, mainly, and I want to um, I want to give you a couple of statistics and see if we can get to the bottom of things because you know there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet these days, and some of it's good, some of it's really good, some of it's a myth, and some of it's just garbage, basically. But if we look at the statistics, um, we know that runners get a lot of injuries and it's actually been really well researched, which is good for us because we've got these statistics at hand. But the statistics tell us that the injury rates in, in young runners are about 45%. So about, about 45% of runners are, are going to get some sort of injury. And um, in the master's runner, so the older runner, it's only a little bit more, so about 49%. But they're still pretty significant stats. 24% uh, of young runners have multiple injuries, whereas 30% of masters runners have multiple injuries so the, the older ones do get a few more injuries but what does differ and this is more what i want to get into with shoes as well is is where these two groups of runners get injured so the young ones seem to get about 48 percent uh injuries around the knee area and 20 percent in the shin whereas your masters runners are more 18% Achilles, 10% calf, and 10% the dreaded plantar fascia. So quite a different uh, distribution of, of injuries. So it tells us, and we know that the, the injury rates in these running athletes are, are really quite a bit higher than most other sports. So I've got four simple questions for you, and a basic simple yes, no, or, or, or very short answer, because we'll get in, into them later. But based on those statistics... Is there a relationship between a person's running shoe and their injury rate? Uh, short answer, I think, would be no to that. Okay. Is there a relationship between their running shoe and their injury type or area? 
I'll again say no with a bit of a asterisk next to that. Uh, perhaps when we think back to you know the minimalist trend in uh, probably 2010, um, you know there probably was a little bit more of a relationship between the, the shoe type and those injuries were presenting. Yeah, okay. So we saw that there's not not a, a great difference in injury rates between the running age groups, but there is a difference in where where these people get injured. Um, is age a factor in what sort of shoe you might present if you're running? It's not significantly, not for me anyway, no. Yep, okay. And lastly, um, should pre-existing injury be a factor in what sort of shoe you're going to select? Yeah, I'd say yes to that. You know, we should pay attention to that when it comes to, uh, you know, the tissues that we want to be thinking of protecting and offloading. Okay, good. All right, so let's get a little bit more into all of those and let's start with the injury rates. So you've sort of said uh, just straight up that, that no, that, you know, the, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, footwear contributes to the injury rates. Um, but what about um, with minimalists and maximalists? And again, you touch on that a little bit. Did, did you see them involved in causing some injuries? Uh, there was certainly a bit of a trend that, that did come around at those times. And, you know, as much as I would say that, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of evidence that necessarily contributes shoes to particular injuries, um, you know, what we know is that the minimalist shoe, the maximalist shoe, they're, you know, moving away from that more traditional shoe and perhaps that more traditional shoe that that patient has normally or, or spent the bulk of their running in that shoe. So, you know, we know that with all tissues in the body that they're going to adapt, uh, you know, tolerance and, and build strength to uh, the load that's exposed to those tissues. And if we change that significantly, uh, be that with, you know, let's say a minimalist shoe, you know, we're going to alter the load patterns through the foot, through, through the lower leg. If we don't allow time for the body to adapt and build strength and tolerance to that new load or, or altered stimulus to the body, then that is going to give them that slightly greater risk and potential for injury. Yeah, sure. And Rick, um, thinking back, I'm sure he said that about 70 to 80% of footwear sales these days are actually in the neutral category of shoes. Um, so is there a, re- a, a reason where you might tell someone specifically to go and get a minimalist or a maximalist shoe? Uh, not a lot, no. Uh, we may use it in, in some forms. I think, you know, going out and buying that sort of a shoe uh, for such, you know, small percentage of what they may be doing running-wise, uh, it doesn't happen a lot. Um, there can be some benefits to, you know, use of shoes like that, but I think it is a difficult one to go and suggest patients buy for particular reasons. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, one of the ones that fascinates me is cushioning. Um, so we've always thought that, well, it always just seems to have made sense that if you've got more cushioning, you've got less impact forces, and if you've got less impact forces, you should have less injuries, but it doesn't seem to be that simple. No, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, there's certainly no research out there that, that shows that cushioning helps to reduce that uh, ground reaction force. In fact, there's actually been research in recent years that's shown the opposite, that when we increase the cushioning within the shoe, that that can have an effect where it creates more lower leg stiffness during that contact phase and you know that increase in lower leg stiffness that has actually seen 
ground reaction forces increase anywhere from 5 to 15%. So that certainly has been seen. Um, and look, again, this even goes back to my days of uh, sitting on the retail floor uh, selling shoes. And, you know, for example, if I had two shoes that I thought were appropriate for a particular customer, let's say one shoe were $50 more expensive than the other, had a, a higher grade of cushioning built into it, you know, the rule with me was that if that customer didn't feel any better in that more expensive shoe with that higher grade of cushioning, then I'd commonly be recommending that they purchase that cheaper shoe because the likelihood is is that extra cost, extra cushioning was commonly not going to be seen. Yeah, okay. So it comes back again to you can get all the advice and be it the retail assistant or you guys, but it, it seems to that final uh, hit the button purchase decision comes back to what that person actually feels when they've got the shoe on. Oh, look, it's always a key. Um, if the shoe doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good, um, there's not many occasions that I've you know, bought a shoe and haven't felt great in that in my first one or two runs that you know it's ended up being a great shoe for me. It's, yep. it's often been one that has fallen out of my rotation. So I think certainly you know that, that first feel has definitely got to be there. And it's interesting, um, and just to go back on the cushioning and you're saying that with more cushioning, you've found that people tend to or can be a little bit uh, stiffer with their running. So you're so, sort of saying that people change their running gait or style or impact forces just by what they feel. So, And by that, I'd say, you know, if somebody's bare feet, obviously it makes sense we automatically change our body patterns to absorb a bit more load. We don't go and smack our heel into the concrete if we're in bare feet. But the body has its ways of... of adjusting depending on what's what's on our foot yeah yeah look that's exactly right and you know that's certainly where we have used things such as you know doing a little bit of running bare feet on a grass oval or or in that minimalist shoe um, just to try and help teach the body how to contact the ground in a way where we're not relying on the shoes cushioning we're relying on our body's ability to help on that side of things so definitely the body will change and we will learn how to uh, how to adapt to those uh, different environments. Yeah, okay. So it's a little bit like, um, and we did a couple of podcasts actually earlier on stretching, and uh, we pretty much summed it up by saying that if people think that uh, stretching is going to help them reduce injury, they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. And likewise, if a runner thinks that just going and getting an extra cushion runner is going to reduce their injury, then that's, that's uh, not exactly right either. No, no, I certainly wouldn't want to be uh, just trying to bang in a bit more cushioning and let that do the job for me. Um, we need certainly a lot more than that. Okay, and it's probably a nice segue actually into, we, we might as well talk about the arthritis side of things. Um, and maybe this is the case that, you know, the, the runner with an arthritic knee, their body does just self-adjust. But um, it's interesting that, you know, we've often thought that, that as we said earlier, that uh, an arthritic joint might mean a person uh, is told not to run. But the current research really is telling us, and you've said personally that you've noticed a difference, but it's telling us that, that the person with, with an arthritic joint can run. I think it is just, again, getting our body being able to adapt and build tolerance, build strength to withstand the load that we're placing it under. And 
you know, the old uh, adage that we sit down in the chair all day and all our body's going to adapt to that and it's not going to adapt to, um, you know, that load and stress through the knee. And so, look, we need to be educated with it. We need to do things gradually as always. Um, but, yeah, certainly I, it's not something that I'd be shying away from. We just need to do it in the right environment with the right advice. Okay, and so you've actually found your knee has been better since you've been running. Yeah, look, it probably, uh, what, maybe six, seven years ago, I think I uh, upped my training really quickly in preparation for one of these uh, Tough Mudder contests. That's probably where it initially uh, broke down and, and presented itself. But once I enabled that to settle down and, you know, just worked a little bit more gradually, um, you know, I'm certainly able to tolerate a lot more load on that than I was seven, eight years ago. Um and, you know, right now it doesn't give me any bother at all. So definitely I'd say it's uh, it's adapted to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Rightio. So if we, we sort of talk about cushioning and, and, and arthritis um, and the, the loads that can go through the knee, um, if we talk about ground reaction force, this is another one that's always fascinated me is that we, this is one of the categories that runners have tended to be put into either a heel striker a midfoot striker or a forefoot striker can we simplify it and is there any use in simplifying it like does does the way a person contact the ground make any difference short answer i'd say is no um look we can simplify foot strike patterns into that forefoot midfoot rear foot strike um but a lot of runners are going to not necessarily have a certain type of contact for all of their running uh you know i know for me for example if i'm running a, a slower pace maybe 5 30 minute uh k's then i'll probably have a little bit more heel contact happening with my gait but if i pick that up four minute k's for 30 then you know that's going to reduce that heel contact probably transition more into that midfoot contact um so look overall i don't think that there's a lot of relevance between putting us into certain categories um but yes, that's certainly how it would be looked at. Yeah, okay. And because there, there's a, a, an amazing picture that I know you've used and, and Rick's used before. I think it was the US Olympic trials um, many years ago. And, and there's a great picture of the men's and the women's foot strike patterns. And like there must be God, 40 or 50 of them. And, and every single one is different. And these are elite athletes. So you sort of got to think that if elite athletes can strike with any pattern that it, it it's not maybe as relevant as we thought no I, I don't think it is as relevant i i remember that picture you're talking about anthony um i think it was a, a u.s 10 kilometer uh national uh track event that they had and uh there was there was a huge range from uh those that did have quite a significant heel contact to those that you know were more forefoot contactors and you know clearly they're all at the the top end of the tree up there um so they're all uh great runners and you know they may have certain injuries that they're dealing with but i, I think it does show us that there is no holy grail of contact and it's not that one is better than the other um you know i've certainly seen from experience there's been uh, a lot of patients that have been advised to change the way they contact the ground and you know that's unfortunately led to significant changes in that load distribution and you know unfortunately that's led them to break down and, and get injured so look i think from my side of things clinically uh i rarely will suggest to patients that they need to 
you know, be more forefoot contact or midfoot contact. Um, there are certainly occasions that we need to assess how they're contacting the ground. And that probably comes not so much whether it's heel or forefoot, but whereabouts they're contacting. You know, are they contacting uh, well out in front of their centre of mass? Uh, and that has a little bit more relevance and research behind it in terms of the potential you know, breaking forces that might be applied through the, the foot and lower yeah. leg. So that's stride length, basically? Yeah, and, and that's really what we'll probably look at mostly is uh, you know, stride length and uh, I suppose that stride frequency or, or what's probably more commonly known as cadence. Okay, and if we talk about um, forces through the foot, there's been some really interesting stuff come about about more time that that foot spends on the ground. And, and, and there's an interesting statement from Rich Willey, who's a physio at the University of Montana. And he's one of our great physio educators that we all, all listen to and learn off. And he says this, that although they run the same distance, an average marathon finisher has his foot on the ground four times as long as an elite runner. Or when you look at it the other way, the elite runner has his or her foot on the ground for only 25% of the time that the average marathoner does. Why is foot contact time so important? I think the the key with that, that's that's a very interesting uh, statistic there, actually. Um, I hadn't heard that one before. I think the importance of it is that that's where our body is subjected to that ground reaction force. So that ground reaction force is what is slowing us down. It's what is exerting stress on our body. Uh, And obviously that contributes to load, uh, which again, you know, the higher the loads, the greater the potential for injury. Yeah, sure. And do you think, um, like, I mean, it's hard to say, but the massive difference between recreational and elite runners on this, do you think, again, elite runners just adapt and learn to get their foot off the ground quicker? Like, why would there be such a difference between recreational and elite? I think um, the, the thing I pay attention to at the moment is the, that recreational runner. And probably even 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, um, even a recreational runner probably was a lot different to the recreational runner that we see these days you know of course uh coaching training data collection you know that has a lot to do with it and obviously those in the uh in the elite ranks are going to be able to uh, be exposed to a lot more of that information um so i think that's probably one of the main keys and they're obviously able to fine-tune their craft as you know any elite athlete in any sport is able to do they're able to spend that time and um really devote themselves to getting that uh, preferred pathway. And there's so many gadgets and uh, information that people can get through through watches and phones and, and the like. Is there any way an average runner would have any idea or could tell what their foot contact times are like? No, I, I don't think that would be an easy thing to, uh, to try and gather that information for us uh, Joe Blows. But that contact time, again, you know, that sort of comes back to where we talk with patients a lot about their cadence, so their step frequency. And, uh, you know, commonly we're looking at what their step frequency is or what their cadence is. And and we can use that as a bit of a a judge in terms of how long their foot might be spending on the ground uh, and trying to reduce that contact time. And uh, uh, also they're looking at trying to increase their cadence in some instances, which will uh, obviously have that positive effect on reducing contact time. 
Rightio, well, before we get into the, the fit for purpose stuff, um, there's just a couple of other things when I was preparing this that, that came up that I wanted to run by you. And as adults, like we put a lot of thought and time into getting the right shoe for us. Um, but we often get asked... Um, as clinicians, so you probably more than us as physios, about flat feet in kids. Um, it's pretty normal, isn't it? Like, when should somebody be concerned about uh, one of their kids having flat or pronated feet? Yeah, look, the the flat foot is in some ways a very normal thing, particularly for young kids, you know, under the age of five, for example. Uh, I think the other key there is uh, what we deem as a flat foot. Um, you know, I've had a lot of doctors, physios, you know, mums and dads tell me that, oh, I want you to see so-and-so because I think they have flat feet. And uh, when I see the patient, it's certainly not something that I would consider to be, uh, you know, titled a flat foot. Um, so there is a lot of difference because obviously that's a very subjective measure. Um, but getting back to you know, when we should be looking at them. I think the key is really looking at pain and function, you know. So if a child is not in any pain, they're able to function, uh, do what they need to do and want to do, uh, then I think that's really the key. I suppose the other thing to think about uh, in relation to purely just looking at that foot posture is any, you know, related history, be that with family, siblings, uh, mum or dad has... Uh, a similar foot type that has given them a lot of trouble, then, you know, that would probably be one that would have me suggest that that'd be worth looking at. And if, you know, for all of us with our kids, and, and as we know, the vast majority of kids are pretty active just in their, their natural everyday life. So how important is it for us to spend time looking at footwear for our kids? Like, is it just a matter of find them something comfortable and let them be? Yes and no. I, I it's certainly important because, you know, the, that child's foot is that growing, developing foot. Uh, we don't want to impede its natural function. Um, the key for me, you know, I've got two young primary school age kids and the key for me with any of their footwear has not been about finding a supportive shoe or finding an expensive shoe. It's commonly been, as, you know, Rick sort of touched on last time, looking at a lightweight, flexible shoe. Um, there's been plenty of times I've been in the the shoe store and I'll pick up the shoes and try and bend it across the forefoot and we've got this shoe that I'm about to fit on my little four-year-old and gee I'm struggling to bend it across the forefoot so you know that really has me think well how is my 18 kilogram child yeah how are they going to function appropriately in a shoe that me as an adult I can't even bend through the forefoot so is there still many of them out there on the racks that's yeah, I think there is. Yeah, I think there is. Um, yeah, I won't put any uh, any manufacturers under the microscope here, but I think there's a lot of shoes that have you know nice, bright, sparkly colours to them and look very appealing. But unfortunately, I've had to uh, carry a crying child out of the <laughs> the uh, retail store on a number of occasions because you know for me it just wasn't appropriate. Let's take a short break and reflect back on the last podcast with Rick Osler. There were so many great points that were raised by Rick in relation to shoe technology. But if you missed it, um, or just to reflect back, here's a little grab of Rick Osler. 
the, the model for which uh, retail has been built on traditionally um, really started in the 80s and that was that if your foot pronates or in particular over pronates, if it doesn't pronate, you've got some major problems. But over pronation, so that sort of rolling in motion where you'll see um, a real curvature at the back of the heel if you're walking behind someone as they roll in, the opposite to rolling an ankle, for example. Yeah. Uh, so flat feet is that, a, is that yeah a so it falls into that yeah. sort of broad category yeah. and, and you would have seen the old wet footprint test yeah, yeah, that runners yeah. world had years yeah. ago and you know all those sorts of things oh gee that foot rolls in or you've got flat feet gee you need a lot of support and so there was a really neat model that retail uh, was able to prescribe shoes according to this model and then if you rolled in you know, plus three, then you're going to be in a heavy motion control shoe because that must be bad. Yep. Um, and if you didn't roll at all, well, you're going to go into a neutral shoe or if you supinate uh, or tend to have higher arches, you'll go into a particular model of shoes and then all grades in between. So you had this, um, you know, zero to 10, if you like, feet rolling in heavily flat at 10 and those feet that go the other way at zero yep. and you're going to be somewhere along that continuum. Um, now that model is neat. It makes sense and consumers get it. But it's wrong. If you want to catch up on episode 11 with Rick, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to Scott Murray. Alrighty, well let's uh, let's move on to um, what you touched on earlier, which is trying to find a shoe that fits your purpose um so obviously uh, as rick said um you know lightweight and, and comfort is important but it makes sense to find something that that fits your sport um so you can't just go and find the lightest and most comfortable shoe it's also got to fit the demands of what you're gonna put your body in that shoe for um so i want to um, ask you a couple of questions along those lines about how different shoes might fit different purposes so let me start with you know um should someone doing five to ten kilometer runs on a recreational level a couple of times a week be looking at a different shoe to someone who's more serious doing more k's more often for me this is probably a little bit of a yes and a no here um i think everyone running in different scenarios different types of uh, runs that they're doing during the week you know they have the potential need for different shoes uh, it also comes down to someone's running experience, uh, as we mentioned before, their potentially their injury history. Perhaps that more experienced runner running a 15 to 20k uh, weekend long run um, versus that inexperienced runner, novice runner, um, maybe running the, the five kilometre midweek runs. There could be some similarity in the shoes that they're using. Um, but I also look at the, you know, I term it the performance versus protection element. Um, so obviously there's going to be some people, some running scenarios where we're going to need to focus a little bit more on the protection side of things, you know, for our, our longer run sessions. When it comes to our, our shorter sessions, our faster sessions, then we're probably not thinking as much about that protection side of things. And we start to think a little bit more about reducing weight, increasing comfort, getting more of that performance side of things uh, out of that shoe. Okay, and so if we go back again, let, let's go uh, down a level and someone who's just walking the streets, said, let me just, I'll, I'll pluck a shoe out and say Asics Kayano, which over the years has been a pretty pretty um, 
commonly used shoe amongst people. Is there any reason that a, a someone who's walking the streets, you know, shouldn't or doesn't need a shoe like that that a runner will have? Or does a walker have every every need to have a shoe as good as a runner? Look, I, I think the that walker does still need that uh, protective element in the shoe. Um, you know, I suppose a, a $270 pair of uh, high mileage running shoes might be pushing the limits in some ways. Yep. And perhaps they might be able to find something that might be a little bit uh, easier on the hip pocket. But, you know, I think certainly even if we are walking, again, those kilometres can build up and our body uh, may only be able to tolerate certain you know, aspects of that load. And so they still do need that, uh, you know, suitable shoe for what they're going to be doing. Yeah, and it's interesting, like it's a it's a point I haven't really thought about much that you said before that like I'm your classic daily walker, um, but the shoes that I walk in are the shoes that I keep on for the rest of the day. So, you know, so your runner probably takes them off at the front door and doesn't put that pair on until they run again. So when you think about it like that, you know, if, if, if I'm spending eight hours of a weekend in a shoe that I'm also walking in, it's, it, it still is pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we know that the key part of the, the shoe's makeup is that, that midsole, the, you know, thick foam, uh, highly cushioned or not highly cushioned. You know, that foam material is the key part of the shoe. And so long as really we're weight-bearing in the shoe, uh, then we're going to be compressing that midsole and that's only going to add to the uh, the reduced lifespan in the shoe. So, there's certainly a lot of occasions where I'll try and get patients where possible, um, you know, whip off their more expensive athletic footwear and get something else on during the day, um, you know, try and save the, the time in their uh, more, you know, supportive, more uh, costly yeah. uh, athletic footwear. Um, now, tell me about trail running. That's got uh, more and more popular over over the years. So if somebody comes in, and uh, look, I, I see quite a few people that do a bit of both, you know, road running and trail running. So again, if we're talking fit for purpose or shoe for purpose, you know, is that a different runner that that person needs? Yeah, look, I think it is. And obviously, it's going to come down to how much of that activity we are doing and whether we see it as... Uh, financially viable to buy a pair of shoes that is more fit for that purpose but definitely look there's significant differences uh, between a, a shoe design for running trails um, you know it's commonly going to have a little bit more um, structure through the upper of the shoe uh, obviously it could be a little bit more uneven terrain that we're running on so we do need to have the shoe able to hold the foot stable on the shoe uh you know it's going to have a, a more grip built into the outsole uh, again designed for those purposes so look it does as i said it comes down to how much we're in those environments and whether we see that as a viable option but there's certainly a lot of benefit there okay what about court sports so you know we're used to seeing the basketballer in the the thicker high cut above ankle boot and and obviously netball um very popular and and lots of injury like are there are there shoes specifically cut for those court type sports yeah definitely and uh this one actually is a little bit close to home for me as well i've recently with uh our lockdowns i've bought my 
local uh, tennis club membership and Righty-o. been out and had yep. a couple of hits of tennis and I was doing that in a pair of my uh, lightweight running shoes and gee I uh, I felt the stress on the foot afterwards. So, oh, really? Uh, I'm surprised you were allowed. Well, <laughs> yes, I, I, I kept that one to myself. Yeah. But, you know, certainly I'll be out uh, getting something a little bit more fit for purpose, I think, over the next uh, next few days. But definitely, you know, there's lots of that lateral side-to-side movement when it comes to, obviously, a sport like tennis and, and our other court sports, netball. And our running footwear is just not designed for that. Uh, you know, running footwear is designed for moving walking running in a straight line and that's how it is built to you know withstand and and try and facilitate that movement so court sports obviously very different we need to have uh, more structure through the upper Uh, commonly will be a little bit stiffer uh, outsole and midsole um, to give us that that stability and traction on the ground Um, so there is a lot of importance particularly when it comes to those court sports and getting something more fit for purpose there so let's let's uh, push back to the running athlete again. Um, and obviously, we're saying they need to find something that that fits their purpose. But uh, I know you and Rick are still big on a variety of shoes, aren't you? So you you might find something that does fit your purpose, but you still need at least a couple of different pairs. Yeah, I, I think so. It is something I talk to my patients about a lot, um, and I think it can assist in a number of ways. Um, you know, number one, it, it does help to vary to a degree the the stress and load that we're placing through the feet and legs so if we have shoes with you know differing uh, makeups differing designs and you know we use those shoes appropriately we can help to you know alter that loading pattern Uh, you know running as we know is a very uh, repetitious sport so helping to get some uh, variation on where that load is uh, being subjected on our body can certainly be of benefit there and you know i've used it also quite a lot to try and assist patients in you know changing their footwear trying to uh, reduce their time in you know the big bulky daily uh, mileage runner and trying to get something a little bit lighter Um, you know we've used it as initially something that we'll use in their rotation maybe used for 20 30 percent of some of their running and over time we'll gradually build that up uh, so again their body can adapt to that change and you know we can transition them into that different shoe but hopefully with a reduced uh, impact uh, when it comes to uh, injury risk okay and so if you do get somebody that comes in and has found their perfect shoe their perfect runner and it feels great and it's everything they've been looking for you you'll still recommend that they they should have a plan b and a plan c or a shoe b and a shoe c uh look that that can be a tough one uh the thing i really uh dislike is when i've got a uninjured patient uh, doing their miles just fine and they've been in a certain shoe for a little while and they you know really find it's great but oh hey my my running buddy's using something different and and that one looked pretty cool or he said it felt really good on his feet i just want to change up for you know for the sake of change and so we do want to be mindful of that uh we don't want to try and make too many significant changes if uh if it's not needed uh you know the old if it's not broken uh, don't fix it yeah but i, I think it's always a, a point of discussion and it's certainly something to think about um because you know it, it does give us some assistance and some variability um so i, I think 
yeah that that topic you raise is is a is a tricky one um but i think it's always worth some discussion um we had a couple of great questions coming through after the last podcast and i just want to throw a couple of characteristics so we've sort of looked at at fit fit for performance or fit for sport um but this listener has, has sort of brought a couple of specific um, uh, body traits, I suppose. Um, so I want to ask you whether there's any certain characteristics in, in runners that we might look at. So one of the things that was brought up was um, uh, certain shoes are made with narrower toe boxes or, or sort of at the at the front of the foot. So someone who might have a forefoot problem, um, be it a neuroma or something like that, like are there certain shoes that are renowned for having either narrower or wider toe boxes uh look not necessarily um you know some brands uh may have that label attached to them but i think a lot of that was a thing of the past and i think again this is where it comes down to you know finding that good retailer someone that is able to find you that shoe um whether it be in the brand that you traditionally thought was a, a narrower branded shoe um but you know the, the good retailer should be able to steer you in the right direction uh, and also give you advice on how a certain shoe is fitting your foot. What about if you're a heavy heel striker? Like you, you know that. Is there anything in a shoe? And again, you, you sort of, I know you, you're going to say you hope your retail assistant might help you with that. But is there any characteristic in a shoe that will help somebody who, who's a very dominant heel striker? If we're trying to work with that patient and and work with that sort of gait pattern then you know it is something that we need to be cautious of i suppose in that instance really significantly reducing as rick sort of touched on last time what they call the the drop in the shoe so the heel height versus the height at the forefoot uh you know if we've got someone who's a very heavy heel striker and again we're, we're working with that then you know we'd want to be conscious not to get them into that you know minimalist shoe or that you know two or four millimeter uh drop shoe what about somebody that's had bony stress so again in the past we we would have automatically maybe thought cushioning but um if someone's had a lot of lower limb bony stress is there anything special in a runner they can look for look not significantly with that one uh you know outside of potentially uh you know your classic metatarsal stress fracture and perhaps steering away from that real minimalist style shoe, um, I, I think the bone stress is more significantly looking at that training program and sure. any errors that might come up in there. Um, it's not one that I would uh, steer into a certain type of shoe. Uh, let's look at uh, the lifespan um, of runners now or, or shoes. Um so you've touched on a little bit saying it's not uncommon for people to come in and they're three or four hundred k's over their limit. So what do you what do you go on? Do you go on time? Do you go on distance? Do you go on wear patterns? Um, probably a little bit of all, to be honest. Um, you know, certainly looking visually at the shoe. Um, it's not always a giveaway, but. Uh, uh, scarily enough often i'll dig my hands into the front of someone's runners and you know have a bit of a look through that forefoot region and you know if i'm seeing you know big pits through the forefoot that you know really signifies that that midsole has compressed then you know there's obviously clear signs there um 
certainly, you know, those that are keeping an eye on it a little bit more will be able to use a lot of their, uh, you know, running data that they collect and their, their running kilometres and they'll be able to use that to give them a bit of a guide. But quite often as well, it uh, it's not rocket science if we just think back to when the shoe was purchased and we look roughly at some of our, you know, weekly Ks that we've been running. We can often put two and two together and come up with a pretty clear figure and, you know, it's not an exact, but it gives us a bit of an idea as to potentially when that shoe should be changing over. Okay, so and is there, um, again, I suppose you could go by time, but if somebody runs once a week, that's going to be a different time frame to someone that runs three times a week. So if we look at distance, is your average shoe made for, on average, a rough length of time? Yeah, there is... It is a bit along those lines, and I suppose the uh, the key word there is the average shoe. Uh, we know now that there's uh, the shoes are coming in all shapes and sizes that you know certainly uh, changes their lifespan. But you know the average uh, daily training shoe commonly will be able to put a, a figure on it somewhere around that six, maybe seven hundred kilometre lifespan. Um, so it's not an exact. We know that, and we know that some people are going to be able to. Uh, adapt around the wear of the shoe and some people are going to be able to cope better than others with the the wear of the shoe Uh, but it gives us a bit of an idea as to you know when we should think about uh, the changeover and uh, you know commonly again for me I think that's a a key time as well Um, you know changing over the shoes trying to make that more of a gradual process rather than a uh, a definite stop on one day and then the new one comes in the following day yeah okay and it's interesting isn't it that some of these or some of the newest uh nike runners that everyone's talking about that uh have a very big price tag um don't even have the six to seven hundred k uh uh distance allowance do they no i'm certainly uh certainly seeing a lot of reports of a lot less than that um but again you know this is where it's not a shoe that i would imagine many people are using as their uh daily running shoe and yep. again it's that real purpose built shoe um it's light fast and is designed to uh feel that way and therefore really assist when it comes to working on time and you know mostly uh race day so to sum up and obviously like i take out of this that that obviously We'll go back to Rick and say comfort uh, and, and lightweight is really important. And, and from you, we add the, the fit for purpose. So we're going to get a shoe that fits what, what we want to do. Um, but would you still come back and say that as much as we spend time on what shoe we're running in, that most of what you see clinically still comes back to training error? Yeah, I, I think that's right on the money. Um yeah, you know, it, it is a factor that we look at, um, but I think it's only a very small factor. Uh, a lot of people probably give it a little bit more weight than uh, it really deserves, and it's commonly seen that you know if we do feel that the shoe is is an issue, it's only a small part of it, and there's often a lot more training errors going on. Uh, you know, even again thinking back to the the COVID impact at the moment, and you know people increasing their running and uh, you know, it might not be a footwear issue, but it's just training-based issues where we're just not really paying attention to the uh, the finer detail of what we're doing on a day-to-day basis uh, training-wise. 
Okay. Um, and if you've covered off the shoes, which obviously you would do, and you've covered off training program, are there any other factors that you see in your runners that, that you will also address? Yeah, look, again, it's probably where we start to think a little bit about that variation. Um, so I will commonly be looking at trying to get some degree of variation for them in their uh, in their running, whether it be the, the surfaces they're running on. Uh, this is where I suppose the trail running has that benefit as well. Um, we know in that trail environment that you know, there is that sort of unevenness in the surface, so there's, there's going to be that slight degree of difference every time their foot contacts the ground. Uh, that can be a good one to do. Um, certainly looking at their strength and training programs when it comes to strength and conditioning is a big part of that as well. Um, and also varied activity. Uh, you know, I think it's good for the mind and good for the body if we do expose it to different stresses and we don't put all of our eggs in that one basket and therefore you know, expose ourselves to more of that uh, overload. Rightio, and if, if you're going to sum up um, Rick's and your podcast and give a take-home message to people on how they move forwards with looking at their footwear uh, selection, what would it be? Look, I think the key there, uh, obviously Rick and I have both uh, hinted at you know, really finding yourself a, a good retailer that you can trust, um, narrowing down uh, your selection, uh, really being specific about what you're going to be using that shoe for, um, trying to focus your uh, purchase in the right areas, and also then thinking of uh, of the outside aspects related to your chosen activity, not just what's sitting on the bottom of your feet. Yep. Okay. And um, finally, obviously, the retail assistants come up numerous times. But would uh, I suppose particularly the more serious somebody is about their activity, which doesn't mean that they're elite; they're just serious. Is that would they not come to guys like you and Rick and a good sports pod for that advice too? Oh, look, certainly there there are a lot of times that we'll be uh, purely looking at. Um you know, footwear discussion with patients. Uh, you know, one of the challenges we have in a clinic is that we don't have those shoes on the wall that we can pop half a dozen of them on and, uh, you know, discuss with patients uh, as they're going, the various factors associated with those shoes. But I think um, we certainly see those patients a lot and, you know, have a, a pretty in-depth discussion around, you know, what they've been using in the past, you know, their injury history. Uh, and then giving suggestions uh, as to what they could be looking at further down the track. So, yeah, look, we do see a lot of that. Scott, that's great. Um, I really appreciate your time. And between the two podcasts, I, I think we've made a complex topic a lot more simpler. And I know even for me, I'll, I'll have a lot more confidence going into a, a shop in, in, in the future and not being lost in, in the wall of shoes that's in front of me. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Scott. Well, that's it for episode 12, and it ties up everything we wanted to find out about footwear. The world of footwear and research development and technology really is fascinating, but it can be a little bit of a daunting world for us novices to work our way through the abundance of information and the technological changes that seem to be occurring all the time. So to gain the expertise of two such experienced sports podiatrists has been really fantastic. And if I think back over the two episodes and summarize my main learnings, I 
think they'd be, number one, find a shoe that fits well and is comfortable on you. And no matter what the sales rep or, or even the podiatrist for that matter uh, may think, it, it's you that has to wear it. So make sure you try it on and make sure it's comfortable. Uh, explain to the sales assistant what you do and what you want the shoe for. So be directed to a shoe that fits your activity. And that's what the, the topic of today's podcast has been, has been fit for purpose. Other things I've learned, um, in many cases, uh, less is more when we talk about weight in a shoe and if you can't pick between two shoes then then maybe going to the lighter one um, may be in your best interest Um, but it's not just as simple as as going on weight because you need to firstly find a shoe that fits your purpose Uh, make sure it's comfortable and then if you can't pick between the two then then maybe that lighter one is is going to be better for you something else as we found out in previous episodes uh, that we've done uh, there's a poor correlation between stretching and injury risk and now we also know that there's a poor correlation between footwear and injury risk and that maybe the most important factor for running athletes is to focus on their training error or potential training errors and, and not not spend so much time on trying to find a shoe that's going to prevent injury. Another thing I think of is terms that uh, we're so familiar hearing, supination and pronation, stability and cushioning, uh, drops and lasts, uh, a lot of these terms really bear no significance anymore. And I also think back and, and a theme that came up often was how critical variation is, not just uh, in a shoe, which is obviously really important, but also in how you vary your training sessions, the surfaces you train on, even just doing something other than running as a little bit of cross training. So find a way to vary your program. And, and this probably goes uh, particularly to the person that we've seen over recent times who's trying to do the right thing and get a little bit fit and active and get off the couch, has just taken up that common five kilometer run a few times a week try and vary it up a little bit and look probably finally um, it really comes down to uh, the real need to be directed to a shoe that fits your activity try it on and if it fits well and it's comfortable um, and you've got the lightest version in that category of shoe then that's probably the right shoe for you. So that's my take-home message from the last two episodes. So I hope you've enjoyed them. Look forward to being back with you all soon with another episode. But that's all from us for now. Uh, And look forward to bringing you another episode soon. And please don't forget, um, head across and hit the follow button and make sure you're up to date as soon as we send our next episode out. (laughs) 